You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. One of the interesting things about the world in which we find ourselves in is the unprecedented access to TV shows and movies. I remember when I was a child, I wanted to watch a cartoon. I had to wait till uh, Saturday morning, and if I slept in and I woke up too late, I would, I would miss the good one and be lacking uh, for the whole week. I, I didn't get my Transformers fixed or whatever it was. I, I loved movies. Back then, like today, there wasn't much worth watching. Uh, today, you can kind of get the idea off the internet if you want to watch it or not. But then, uh, I guess you had to wait till it was on uh, VHS. You could go rent it. And really, it was only in the past not that many years that we realized that uh, it was actually a tremendous hassle to go to the video store and rent a movie that you wanted to watch. So we put them all online. Our boys love movies. Desiree and I have had some fun picking out movies that we think they might like. The funny thing is, just about everything that we can think of is just a, a click away, and it's there instantly of just speaking into a remote. Our kids don't know hardship. <laughs> they don't know what it's like to wake up on 8.30 on Saturday morning and realize that you missed your favorite TV show by 30 minutes, and uh, that was a horrible feeling. I'm not sure I'm quite over it, but... You know, Desiree, she comes up with ideas of what, the, what she wants them to watch. She uh, watches The Parent Trap with them, right? Those movies, you remember those? And when they watched it, the old version, then they'll watch the new one, the remake, which is fairly old now, too. Um, but they love those movies. One of the, the ones that I watched with them not long ago was uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from the Chronicles of Narnia. They, they really liked that, so then we... You know, a little while later, we watched the, the next one, Prince Caspian. They liked that one, too. And, and there's this scene in, in that movie that was such a, a great picture. of. And I was thinking about that scene as we were approaching here, the, the Gospel of John. I, I really think it highlights John's purpose in the book and in our prayer as, as we get into it. Let me just read that scene to you from the book. You might recognize it. It's when Lucy sees uh, Aslan, uh, the Christ figure, the, the lion, after a long time, in fact, it's been many years, and Lucy is, is looking into the eyes of this, this huge lion who is the symbol of Christ, and, and she's dreaming about what she's going to see later. And, and you read this. Welcome, child, he says. Aslan, said Lucy. You're bigger. That is because you're older, little one. Not because you are? I'm not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Let me just show you the clip. Hopefully it
Well, that was that was a letdown. Sorry, <laughs> audio sounded a little better on my side. Uh, um, but I, I think I think you get the point, right? She sees the she sees lie the lie in Aslan, and, and she says, "You're, you're bigger." Here's, here's why that clip is so profound. Because even the most serious student of, of John's gospel, right? Maybe you've, you've read the book before. You've, you've studied it many times. Maybe it was the book that you were discipled in and, and you came to and, and read uh, when you were a, a very new Christian. But the, the fact is, each time we return to the gospel, we find Christ a little bigger. This is like, Lucy's experience with Aslan. She sees him after a while, and this line was that was bigger than, than life to begin with. But as, as much as, as she grows, then so does he. And that's the same for us. The more we study the, the life and ministry of Jesus, the more we come to the gospel, the greater Christ is. We continually find him bigger and bigger. And I, I guess I say this because as I was thinking about the, the message last week, I was thinking about that some might think, well, you know, we're, we're coming to this gospel and it's, it's, it's so basic. It's really about uh, evangelism and it's about those kind of things that, that really just don't apply to me. But that really isn't the case. I think the first words of the gospel actually bear that truth out. I, I love how the book starts because it doesn't start with a, a small Christ. Some might suggest that the other gospels do in a, in a sense, right? Jesus is born in, in Bethlehem as a baby. But like we said last time, the, the birth narrative wasn't really John's concern. He doesn't have that. He understood that his readers would have known that Jesus was born, that he was completely human. We're going to get into that. We'll actually see it shortly in the gospel of John. But in John, Jesus isn't portrayed as small. He's larger throughout the book. But much like the Chronicles of Narnia seen here, it isn't that Jesus is growing. It's that we are. And the more we grow, the more we see him, the larger he gets. Notice something about how Jesus is portrayed from the onset of the book. In fact, there's a striking resemblance here between the opening words of John's gospel and the beginning of the entire Bible. In the beginning. In the beginning was Christ. He didn't start in a stable in Bethlehem, but he was in the beginning. Now, before we get too far here, we should say a word, no pun intended, about the language that John uses here in reference to Jesus or the second person of the Trinity, since Jesus really hadn't been named yet. 
But just look at the first verse. In the beginning was the Word. Now, there's no question as to what John has in mind here by this word, logos, that he is thinking about Jesus. He's using that word, logos, word, to point to Jesus. He's going to change up the language here in the prologue and refer to the light, right, the light that is coming into the world, going so far to say that all things were created by this light in verse 10, and that the world didn't know him, then in verse 14, we read that the word, the divine logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. Of course, this entire section, the prologue of the Gospel of John, is about Jesus. The one who created everything in the beginning is the same one who took on flesh and dwelt among us, who came to make the gospel known so that we might believe this gospel, that he is gracious to us and would redeem us from the law. From those who are under the look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Christ Jesus. Of course, this comparison isn't setting Moses up against Jesus in a negative sense. And we'll get into this more when we get to that text. But for now, just notice that there is a contrast here a contrast between law and gospel. And of course, we know that the gospel is all about Jesus Christ. I, I read something the other day that, that made reference to salvation in the Old Testament, but made no reference to Jesus Christ. It's a huge red flag. Yes, God, by his mighty hand, saved the nation of Israel many times and in various ways, most notably from the oppressive power of, of Egypt. This deliverance, though, pointed to Christ. It wasn't a, an end in itself. The book of Judges is another example. Over and over, the people fall into sin and rebellion, and the Lord raises up a judge to do what? To deliver the people. But that deliverance was an ultimate. It wasn't an end in itself, but it pointed to Christ, who is the ultimate deliverer. Salvation from sin and ultimate destruction is found in Christ alone. I think that the contrast that is being made here and why this prologue is so important is that John here is introducing Christ who is this ultimate deliverer the long anticipated savior has come right hope isn't found it cannot be found in law keeping people should know this by now that if our hope was in the ability to keep the law of Moses right the 10 commandments that in the end, on the ultimate day of reckoning, we would be found lacking. This is why the good news of Jesus Christ is so important, that he would do what we could not do, that he would fulfill the law perfectly, that he would secure salvation for all those who would believe. So John, right from the onset of the book, puts his thesis forward, that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he is God. In the beginning was the word, and this word was with God and was God. In other words, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, I am the light of life, I am the resurrection of life, he is claiming to be God 
And this verse sets the thesis up right at the beginning that Jesus is who he claimed to be. The rest of the book is then showing or bearing this thesis out to be true. And then in the end, in what we've called the, the purpose statement in John 20, we, he says, in essence, I could have wrote books and books on this. But the evidence here serves the purpose that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And having this good news of Jesus, having this evidence, the purpose of all of this is that you might believe it and have eternal life in his name. Clearly, then, when John uses the word word or, or logos here in reference to Jesus, is a reference to Jesus. But the question is, is, why does he choose that word? What is the significance of that term? A lot of has been made about this. I think D.A. Carson makes a, a wonderful point here. He says that we can look <clears throat> to the background of the word logos and really seek to understand how that word was, was used and, and all of that by various groups and different people at the time. And while those things are really important, we also need to take this whole thing a step further because there is a, a wealth of ways in which the term was used. But his point is that we need to go to John himself and see how he's using the word and not try to read somebody else's understanding of the word into the way John is using it. Carson says it this way. When looking around for suitable categories to express what they had come to know of Jesus, many that they applied to him necessarily enjoyed a plethora of antecedent associations. Therefore, the terms had to be systematically related to what the Christians wanted to say, or they could not have communicated what they wanted to say about Christ. In other words, the words that they chose to say something about Christ Jesus had a, a plethora of other meanings. But the Christian chose those words for the purpose of saying something about Christ. And I think that's the question. I think Carson is exactly right. We can't just look into backgrounds of words like logos and say, this is what it means. For instance, we can't just look and say, well, that word logos is a philosophical, philosophical term, which it was used by the Stoics to be the, the rational principle by which everything exists. And, and in essence, they believe that the, the logos was the, the essence of the human soul. I've actually known some that would interpret the word logos here in the first word is, is reason or rational principle of God. And certainly this factors into our understanding, but it should not, however, and I think this is Carson's point, that it cannot cloud our understanding of what John is trying to get across by using that term here. We know clearly that John is speaking of Jesus, so then he's using this word to communicate something about Jesus. So the question is, why does John choose this word, or better yet, what is he trying to communicate to the reader about Jesus by using this word? Certainly, John is, is alluding to the Old Testament, where God, God's word is connected to his powerful activity of creation. We've said this already, but just our reading of the, the text points us back to the Old Testament. In the beginning, draws our attention back to the opening verses of the Bible, and that creation came about by the word of or decree of God. The word God spoke his word and everything existed. His powerful word creates. Not only is 
God's word seen as being creative, but it also brings about deliverance and judgment in the Old Testament as well. Just think of Psalm 107.20 for one example. Uh, God sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their trouble. In Isaiah 55.11, we read that the word that goes forth from the Lord's mouth will not return empty, but will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. And this is, this is powerful. God accomplishes his purpose through his word. And just, just think about that. I mean, that's, that's tough to, to comprehend, tough to fathom. God accomplishes his purpose through his word. And I think the simplest way to understand John's using of the word logos here in understanding this is, is that God's word has been made incarnate. God's word has been made a person. And that Jesus, that in Jesus, the word of God goes forth from the Father, accomplishing the purpose for which it is sent. God's purpose is incarnate. His word is taken on flesh. We see in Jesus this, this word personified. I think that's what John is getting at. That he's taking this term that is used all over in the Old Testament. Another example, when we read of a prophet in the Old Testament, we also, we read things like, the word of the Lord came to this or that prophet. The prophet will say, thus saith the Lord, or this is the word of God. It is the word of the Lord personified in Jesus Christ. It is the truth that John is, is getting at here, namely that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, and who he says he is, is God himself. God taking on flesh, accomplishing his purpose in time, in history. Let's just take a, a few moments and think about this first statement in the Gospel of John. Just the, the first verse, not the entire prologue, not the first 18 verses. The entire prologue points to the greatness of Jesus, but the first verse, I believe, is, is really the, the thesis statement. And I think we see three things here that are really important as we embark on our journey in this Gospel about Jesus. Let's just take each one of those things. The first point that is, is made here is, is that Jesus was eternally pre-existent. Eternally pre-existent. Those are, are big words, but here, here's what we mean. There was never a time when the second person of the Trinity did not exist. He was always in existence. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, we read that in Christ all things were made, all things were created by him. Think about that for a moment. Before anything was created, he existed. In other words, there was nothing that was, that was created without him. He always existed and then created everything that came into existence. 
In our text, in the beginning was the Word. The, the, the imperfect Greek tense here makes it abundantly clear that he was continuing in the beginning. That's the idea. In the beginning, Christ was continuing. He always was there. When there was a start of things, he was there. To make it simple, there was no start to him. One scholar put it this way, Jesus Christ was always wasing. That's the point. He was pre-existent. When everything else started to exist, he was there. He was continuing. This is really difficult, isn't it? I mean, we think in terms of beginnings. For instance, it is difficult for us to think about uh, life before our, our children. Life really doesn't, doesn't make sense without them. Desiree and I have talked about this before. You know, what, what did we do before we had kids? You know, like back when we were dating and it, it, it's difficult for us to even wrap our, our minds around that. When thinking about the fact that God existed prior to creation of the universe, that is a challenge to say the least. But here, just notice that the first words are pointing to the, the greatness of Christ. What could be greater than one that is eternally pre-existent. But get this, not only did the second person of the Trinity exist before the beginning, but he always was. That word eternal there is so important. It's not just that Christ was pre-existent to creation. It's that he is eternal. He always was. There was an error in the, the church really early on. A guy by the name of Arius taught that Jesus Christ was the was the first of all of creation. That God created him first and that he was God's most loved and treasured creation and then God used him to create everything else. Notice what he wasn't saying. He wasn't saying that Jesus was just another creation like the rest. He wasn't on par with trees and toads. But he was the first. He was the most treasured. He was trying to affirm the oneness of God and also the importance of Jesus Christ at the same time. His, his heart was, was right. In his mind, though, Jesus could have existed before creation in a general sense. But he would also affirm that there was a time in which Jesus Christ was not. We are saying here that not only was Christ pre-existent, but he was eternally pre-existent. There was never a time in which he was not. By the way, <clears throat> Arius' view divided the empire at the time. It was a huge theological controversy. And this is just one of many Christological errors that would arise in the early church. But actually, John, in the language he uses here right off the bat, points to the fact that Jesus was eternally pre-existent. Notice also, the text says that Jesus was eternally with God. Literally, the idea here is that the word was continually toward God. In other words, they were face to face. That's the, that's the idea of, of with. 
Here's a, a shot at another Christological heresy. This one's called modalism. There are actually some pretty well-known people today that believe modalism. They believe this to be true. Uh, they're called usually oneness Pentecostals, uh, a name that you may have heard of. T.D. Jakes falls into this category. You might have heard that name. These deny the Trinity. Now, again, they do this to affirm the oneness of God. God is one. We read that all over the place, right? We're monotheists. They're affirming the, the oneness of God. And they would say that what we see in Scripture is God appearing in different modes. In the Old Testament, we have the Father, and in the Gospels, we have Jesus. Now we have God appearing or functioning in the person of the Holy Spirit. According to modalism, these are not separate persons of the Trinity. There is one God that functions differently depending on the circumstance. In the first verse of John's Gospel, we do not see this at all. There's no hint of modalism here. In fact, we see an affirmation that Jesus was a separate person. It's subtle, but it's there. In John 14, Jesus will say something like this again. He will say in verse 9 that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's great unity within the Trinity, but there's also diversity. They're distinct persons. They are with one another. To the point, if you see Jesus, you know what the Father is like. Because they're both God. But in John 14, Jesus didn't say, if you're looking at me, you're looking at the Father. He's simply saying, you should know what the Father is like because you've been with me this long. You, you know me. And if you know me, you know him. Notice also here that, that this points out, that this points to the, that these two persons are, are both pre-existent. They're, they're with the Father. For the, the Son has been with the Father before the beginning. There was fellowship between the members of the Trinity before Adam and Eve were ever created. I think this is another difficult thing for us to grasp. That there was a time in which human beings were created. There was a time in which human beings were created, and before that, God existed. Now, some have asked that question: What did God do before He created us? And then they've answered that by saying that God was lonely, so He created us. <clears throat> because that's the only thing we can comprehend. God didn't have anything. Therefore, he must have needed something. That is an error. To suggest that God was lonely would give the impression that he was creating something then to fulfill a void. There, there was no imperfection. There was no void in God. Before the creation of humanity, there was no error in him. The fact is, the son was with the father. They were content. They were face-to-face. -face. It's hard to grasp. We've had a, a few months of this pandemic, and many are, are kind of struggling with the isolation. We, we see stories that the depression and anxiety are on the rise. When we think of God not having us, we think that 
He must have been depressed in some way like we are. That's very arrogant of us to think that. To suggest that God needed us to fulfill a void in him. That he needed us to complete him. That there was something lacking. When in actuality the reverse is true. We need God to fulfill what is lacking in us. Finally, notice that final phrase in verse 1. The word was God, or he was eternally God. The idea here is that the word was God in both essence and character. And it's because of this statement that, that's, that John 14, 9 makes sense. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because in, in essence, in character, they're both the same. He was God. In every way, yet a separate person and distinct from the Father. Some might say that this phrase seemed to contradict what we just said, that the word was with God. But the fact is, the way this is, is formed, the perfect and separate identity of Jesus is affirmed while saying that he is God. They're, they're face to face, but they're the same. Talking about the Trinity isn't simple. It might be easy to say that God is three in one, or one God in being that exists in three persons. These are, are true statements, but three in one sounds like a contradiction. One being three sounds better, but it's still hard to understand how the distinct persons of the Trinity are one. If they are distinct, wouldn't that make them three? But if they're three, how would they be one? I, I think what John does here is, is actually beautiful. Of course, his purpose isn't to explain the Trinity, but he is using very Trinitarian language in that he is saying clearly that the second person of the Trinity, the Word, is God, and this Word was with God from the beginning. In other words, this is Jesus' continuous identity, always. That he was with God, always, and he himself is God. It's really, a, it's really marvelous to start the gospel this way, to say, this is the Christ that I'm going to proclaim to you. This is the Savior. This is the one whom you've been waiting for. He is the Word. He will accomplish the purpose for which He is sent. Just as God's Word does this. He is the answer to the promise of Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3, that the curse of, of sin and death will be defeated by the seed of the woman. And that seed that was promised is none other than God himself. Think about that. That the one who was promised in Genesis 3.15 to defeat the sin, the curse of sin and death, is none other than God himself. Who is Jesus? Who is the word? He's the one he claimed to be. He's God. He's the only one that could deal with the plague, the curse of sin. He's the only one that could deal with its penalty. 
Do you see even right at the onset here that John is, is after something from the reader? He's after belief. He's asking you to believe, to believe that Jesus is God and that he's worthy of our belief and our devotion because if he is who he claims to be, if he is who John is claiming him to be in the first verse, then he is worthy of our belief and worthy of our devotion. Jesus Christ came and did what you and I could not do. He lived perfectly. He was obedient to law at every point. He did this for us. The law says, do this and live. And for years and years, hundreds of years, We've been under this law, trying to, to live up to it, to, 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 to be obedient enough for God to, to be pleased with us. But every time we look realistically at it, like Paul says in Romans chapter 7, every time we, we start looking at one point in the law, like covetousness, the, the more we realize how much we, we deal with that. And every time we start getting it straight and figured out in our life, the more we start figuring out, the more we struggle with that very sin. The more we figure out we fall short and that we are in desperate need of something, some righteousness, as Martin Luther called it, some righteousness that was alien to us, that was outside of us. Because if we depend on our own righteousness, we will always fall short. We need an alien righteousness to, to come in. And that is none other than God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And John sets this up right from the start. In the beginning was the word. He was with God and he was God. Because it is none other than God himself that could deal with the penalty of, the penalty of sin and death on our behalf. That curse could only be crushed by him, Jesus Christ, taking and fulfilling what was lacking in us, doing what we could not do on our behalf. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.